Raji Sohal. On the podcast today, a lot of folks take issue with how the police operate in BC and some are calling for an overhaul of the system and that the RCMP even get replaced. Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke had a lot of thoughts to share on this topic. And also, you'll want to know the new change in policy for blood donations in Canada. And Chinatown has changed a lot. What are business owners saying about it? But first, the BC Liberal leader, Kevin Falcon, won the Vancouver Quilchenna riding. He was my guest, and we got right down to the issues that matter to BC residents, the drug crisis, BC's healthcare system, and more. BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon won the legislature seat in Vancouver, Colchena, and he got almost 60% of the vote. He's my guest right now. Good morning, Mr. Falcon. Good morning, Raji. And congratulations on your return to the legislature. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good. You know, it was um, it, it was kind of a, a, a nice result because, uh, you know, it was a campaign where we tried hard to be positive and talk about what we were doing, and, and the NDP really just turned it into a very, very negative personal attack. But it really shows that the public wasn't willing to accept that attempt to pivot away from their record. And, and uh, so that, that felt good, and, and the people were great. Okay, well, since you bring it up, I know you have had plenty of time to reflect on your own personal track record. When you look back now, based upon your reflections, what do you feel that you should change based upon what you've learned? Well, look, I think it's important to recognize context. You know, Raji, when we got first got elected, when I first ran in 2001, we had inherited a, just a terrible economic situation. Some people may forget that, but the 90s were a very tough decade of NDP government, and that's probably why uh, they lost and we won the largest majority in the history of the province of British Columbia because people were so fed up with the the mess they'd left us. And so we had to clean that up, and it wasn't easy. And not every decision you make in government is always the perfect decision. And sometimes we make mistakes. That is very true. And I just think that we always have to have the humility of, recognizing that we're not perfect and if we make a mistake to correct it fix it and move on and and that's what I've always tried to do whether in public life or in the private sector okay so what were those mistakes like what are you what are you hoping to change are you are you talking there about having cut health care in the past well don't, uh, trust me don't ever buy into that health care has never been cut uh, neither is education you have to understand that if you look at the budgets every single year when I first ran the healthcare budget was about eight and a half billion. When I left, it was eighteen and a half billion dollars. So healthcare will never be cut. It's only going in one direction. What you have to understand is that sometimes in government we have to change the way we do things. For example, I would argue right now we have to make big changes to healthcare because one out of five British Columbians, almost a million people, have no access to a family physician. So if we keep doing the same old thing and expecting different results, we're not going to get them. And so um, those are the kind of things that, that require change. Change doesn't mean cuts. It just means you're doing things differently because you want to get different results. Okay, just a couple of things I want to pick at there. You mentioned the access to family doctors, a huge issue right now in our province. Uh, so many uh, residents of BC just don't have the family doctor, the care that they need to follow them through. So what is your answer there? Well, there's there's a number of answers. But first of all, um, so when we, again, first got elected, we doubled the number of uh, training seats for doctors. We opened up the University of Northern BC medical program so we could uh, allow young people from the north to be trained as doctors in the north, and, and they are more likely to stay there, which has proven to be true. 
Um, but there has been no expansion whatsoever since those changes that we made. Now, this NDP government promised that they were going to bring a medical program to SFU in Surrey. They're in their second term now. Nothing has happened. And I just think that um, what we have to do is dramatically expand the number of training spaces. We have to make sure that foreign doctors that are appropriately trained, and there's many of them, that cannot get into our system. We've got to sit down with the doctors at BC and the entire regulatory process and say, you know what? We're going to make changes. We've got to make it easier to allow highly trained doctors to practice in BC, those that wish to. And we've got to make sure that with family physicians, we're not burdening them with all this bureaucracy and overhead and red tape that that is currently taking place. This is what I'm hearing from the frontline doctors. And so that we can free them up to make sure that they can do what they do best, which is practice medicine. So what is the the answer there in terms of removing bureaucracy for family doctors so they're not having to also operate a business while be a doctor? So what is the solution there? Well, well, that, that, that I think is the opportunity. There are ways that we can um, take away a lot of that headache from them where they can still maintain, they can have their independence, they can still do their billing, et cetera, but we can relieve them of a lot of that back office headache uh, that, that they have to deal with. And I've got lots of ideas uh, around that. I want to make sure I have a chance to sit down uh, with my friends in the medical community. I have lots of them so that we can sort of fine-tune some of this. But there are answers out there, I can assure you. It just takes the kind of leadership that isn't afraid to say, okay, you know what, we're going to make a big change here. And we're going to make a big change because we need to have a big change in results too. And I, and I think I can do that. Mr. Falcon, you also said 2000 was a different time. It absolutely was. It was a long time ago. Uh, but what for you has changed substantially in terms of cultural shifts that you feel would bring about a difference in your leadership? Well, I think the biggest change is, you know, um, when I retired from public life in 2012, my eldest daughter was just about two years old, and my wife was pregnant with our second daughter. Today, they're 12 and 9. And, you know, I I, I think when you have kids, it, my, my principles don't change, but my values do. I've spent the last 10 years on the board of the Street to Home Foundation working with uh, those that are homeless and, and are down on their luck. And we've studied a lot of those issues. I have a real passion about dealing with the mental health and addiction issues. Um, I think that, you know, when you look around and see that every year for the last five years, we've had the worst overdose rates of overdose deaths ever in the history of the province. And I just I, I just shake my head in frustration because we've got the government saying, well, don't worry, we're going to just do a lot more of the same thing we've been doing for the last five years. And, and they, they expect somehow to get different results. That's not going to happen. We, we owe it to those that are, are struggling with mental health and addiction to do things totally differently. So those, I think, are the kind of things, Raji, that, that, that I've changed, I, I guess you could say. I care a lot about results, not rhetoric. I'm tired of politicians making promises and never delivering things. I just think it's so important that we hold politicians, including myself, to results. So the overdose crisis that you mentioned there, definitely a major issue on the minds of so many British Columbians. But what, again, would be your resolution there? Well, two things. Number one, um, when we think about homelessness, when we think about addictions, um, right now what you have is a government that is entirely focused, almost to the exclusion of everything else, on uh, the issue of harm reduction and providing safe drugs. This is their latest mantra. Um, we, we just have to provide safe drugs and everything will be okay. Well, look, I, I've always said maybe that's a part of the solution, 
But I tell you right now, if we don't invest massively upfront in recovery programs, we have to have as our primary goal helping addicts get off their addictions. And we also have to remember that there's four pillars to this entire thing. Everyone talks about the four pillars. But prevention and treatment and enforcement and harm reduction are those four pillars. And we cannot, we cannot forget enforcement and we cannot forget the importance of treatment. And unfortunately, those are being almost completely ignored right now. And we have to make sure that that's part of the solution too. But the government will say that they have done more than any other government for treatment, that they're adding more beds. And yes, I have to agree with what you're saying. There aren't enough uh, beds, there aren't enough, there aren't enough spots for care for addicts. So I, I don't quite get what you would do differently there than what they are doing. Well, the, the problem is they're not. You, you have, again, this is where we have to hold them accountable for results. It's kind of like when they said they were going to build 114,000 new affordable housing units in 10 years. Uh, you know, so far, they've built about 5,250, and 2,800 of those were started under the B.C. Liberals. Um, so they've, at the current rate they're going, it'll take 100 years before they achieve that objective. It's the same thing with this, where they make promises that, oh, we're going to add this, they're announcing that. But the problem is the beds aren't there for the people that need them. And this is my whole point, is that we have to get around to actually making sure that we get results. And by the way, they're spending most of their time saying we just need to you know, focus on providing safe places to shoot up, free drugs, safe drugs, etc. And the problem is you talk to any physician, they will tell you there is no such thing as a safe drug. And they will also tell you, if you look at the statistics, we've got to stop assuming that all the people that are dying of drug overdoses are dying in the downtown east side. That is not the case. 70% of them are men. And the majority of them are unfortunately dying in their apartments, in their homes throughout the province. Many of these are, are fully employed, good, solid human beings that work every day, have families, etc., and that are involved in recreational drug use and are not expecting to die. And, you know, uh, having, having uh, safe drugs being distributed by physicians um, is not going to reach these folks because they probably don't want their family or even their doctors to know that they're involved in recreational drug use. So we just have to understand the problem properly and make sure that we're addressing it with solutions that get results. Okay, I appreciate the thorough answer there. Thank you so much for being with us this morning and congratulations to you, Kevin Falcon. Well, thanks very much, Raji. Great to be on your show. In the B.C. Legislature, a committee was appointed to reform B.C.'s Police Act, and they recommend moving to a provincial police service that would be an amalgamation to achieve a new vision of policing and of community safety. Now, one of the goals coming out of the report is to seek equal treatment from the police. Here to talk about this is Brenda Loxury, City Councillor. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Raji. So why do you think so many people want this new structure? You know, um, I have a hard time getting to why on this. I, uh, I don't understand what they see um, and how they see it. Certainly there were no municipal people on that committee, and I think that was a great oversight um, not to have local government at the table. Okay, and what about their findings and what they're calling for, including, for example, some anti-racism work, given that they have found that there is a disparity in how people are treated? There's a major difference. What do you think about all that? Well, I think that um, 
that is important work. And I think that goes with just about any large organization, be it healthcare or education, and certainly uh, with public safety, that we should always be reviewing where we are in terms of uh, systemic racism, uh, accountability and transparency. Uh, I think those are really important uh, points, and I'm glad that those, those have been raised. Okay, and how do you think that they should be dealt with if if not through a new system? Well, I, I don't think that it was necessary to say um, we're changing policing because of that, because certainly I know uh, from our experience in Surrey that uh, the Surrey RCMP are always um, alive to those issues. They are always reviewing systemic racism within um, within their members and and doing uh, training for that. Uh, but in terms of the accountability and transparency piece, we know absolutely that um, localizing police or having a uh, Metro Vancouver police or, or uh, Victoria or regional policing is not going to change that. I mean, certainly we've seen in Surrey um, we had great, uh, great um, dialogue with the uh, RCMP prior to uh, the beginning of the transition. Uh, but once the transition started to happen and we had a police uh, startup police force, which is the Surrey Police Service, that all went away. Everything was shut down. There is no transparency at all. Um, we've heard them talk about local representation on the board. That isn't factual at all. Uh, we know in Surrey that some of the board members don't live in this city. They live outside of Surrey. So a lot of the um, expectations that people had with a, a local police service didn't transpire. The report calls on municipal leaders to sit on police boards, but to stop mayors from being chair. There were also recommendations, uh, including overhauling mental health and uh, addictions coordination, and that a new system was required to address these issues. What do you think about that? Well, I think in terms of the mental health and addictions services, that's absolutely something that should be happening. And for large police um, departments like Surrey, Vancouver, they do have um, integrated services with uh, with the health authorities so that um, there are mental health uh, people going Sorry, out. Sorry, Brenda, I don't mean to interrupt, uh, but I just want to acknowledge that you're saying, you, I mean, you're agreeing with a lot of these points that, yes, they do have these things in place already, but the problem is people are saying it's not working. So what do you say to that aspect? Well, it, it's working in it's working in Surrey. It's working in Vancouver, and I think that's because they're larger um, police departments. I'm not sure that um, they're working in in smaller police departments. I don't know the answer to that, but uh, certainly they are working in uh, Surrey. But really, mental health and addiction services is a health issue, and it should be handled by healthcare. There's no question about that. So some people would say that uh, it's not just a health issue, that health doesn't exist in this kind of vacuum, that it has to also be integrated uh, better with our justice system. What do you think about that? It does have to be integrated with with the justice system. There is, um, It's very clear. And, and as I said, the bigger departments do their best to try and integrate those services. 
um, and they're doing that in in the larger uh, larger centers for sure. I know Vancouver uh, PD certainly has some of that. Can they do more? Absolutely, they can and should do more, um, but they are doing some. I think um, the concern I have the most with the report is that it's it's saying that it has to be a complete transformation of to a provincial police. I don't see how that's rational. I don't see how that's going to even be um, fiscally responsible. And I think the fact that this report doesn't reflect on on uh, the concept or the money. I think that was a big loss in the report, and I think it's something they have to review. Okay, can you tell me a little bit more about that? A complete transformation, I think you're right, is going to be uh, quite costly, and we know uh, whose shoulders that's going to lie on, the taxpayers. So what would you like to see instead? Because at once you are acknowledging that there needs to be some improvement, there needs to be change, but you're also saying a complete transformation isn't the way to go. So what should be done? Well, you know, certainly we've seen from the beginning of this report, they actually raised in uh, the 2020 review of the report or of the uh, process, they talked about an additional police tax that's right in their documentation. I think that should be a large red flag to every British Columbian. Um, But I think that integrating health services more uh, is important. I think just um, integrating police services more is important. I do agree with with some of that, it, you know, the relationship between different police services. I think where I, I get very concerned is where they're saying the RCMP in British Columbia should be, uh, should be moving on and we should be looking at a singular uh, provincial police force or, or um, Metro Vancouver or Metro uh, Victoria Police Force. I think um, there's going to be a lot of local government pushing back on that, and we're already seeing that. We are seeing that indeed. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you for having me. Canadian Blood Services says that starting September 30, it's going to end a policy that wouldn't accept blood donations from gay men. To talk about the reasoning and decision to drop the ban now is Dr. Supriya Sharma, Chief Medical Advisor to the Deputy Minister of Health Canada. Good morning, Supriya. Good morning. So I want to ask in general, how are blood donations going these days? Are people donating more or less than before? How much blood is needed? Can you just give us a picture of all that? Yeah, so in general, I mean, thanks to the the generosity of donors here in Canada, we do have enough blood um, to manage uh, the the needs. However, the pandemic has put additional strain on the blood collection system. So we have seen a decrease in the numbers of donors that are that are showing up. So, you know, certainly it's been been a challenging period for for all of us and we're seeing that reflected. But still, we do have um, enough blood and blood products for for the healthcare system. Okay, can you talk about what that strain is, though, in relation to the pandemic? You said you're feeling a strain there in blood donations. What, what is that? Yeah, I mean, simply put, there's just fewer people showing up to donate blood. And, you know, it may be because of uh, concerns regarding uh, being exposed to coronavirus 
or, you know, their people are limited, they may not be in their own in- environment. So there has been a decrease, but I know there's been, a, you know, there are a lot of regular uh, donors that are here in Canada and they do, you know, continue to, to show up and, and provide those donations. Okay, and I wanted to probe about that a little bit. You said regular donors. So so how many or what is the portion of the ratio of the, the donations that come in that come from the same people? You know, that's actually a varied number across Canada and the blood operators. So um, in all of Canada, other than in Quebec, which is HEMA Quebec, uh, they monitored those, those statistics. And then Canadian Blood Services monitor those uh, outside of, of Quebec as well. And again, that varies from time to time and it varies from province to province. So they'd be best placed to provide the specific statistics on, on regular versus um, new blood donors. Okay, so let's talk about blood safety. We understand that people who donate blood uh, are screened verbally, right, prior to donating, but we know people might not be honest in doing so. Uh, They might not be answering the questions honestly. So what happens to blood donations right after the, the person who's donated it has given the blood? Sure. So there was, as you said, there's a standard questionnaire that all people uh, respond to, and it asks a variety of different um, information, pieces of information. So travel history, um, things like if you had a tattoo or piercing, um, do you have medications that you're taking? So they're basically those those questionnaires are designed to decrease the risk of, of infection that's transmitted by the blood system. But even when we have those questionnaires, that's one part of the system. The other part of the system is that the the blood and the donated products are tested. So for example, for viruses, they're tested for things like uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, syphilis, and a rare virus called HTLV. Um, And then there's a process whereby those are, are then Tested. And then depending on what the, what the product is, because blood is made up of different components, some of them may actually go on to get further treatment as well to try to decrease any risk of transmission or infection. Okay, so just to be really clear, all blood is tested for hepatitis, HIV and other things there that you mentioned. And, and what happens to the blood beyond testing? So it's treated. Basically, what happens is that, for example, there's white blood cells, leukocytes that are taken out of the the samples because that decreases your risk of having uh, a reaction to to the blood. Um, Depending on what the blood is, it's separated into its components. We've got red blood cells, platelets, uh, the straw-colored liquid part is called plasma. That plasma might go into uh, making other products as well. So again, there's a complicated, complex process. If we're talking about just whole blood, so those red blood cells, if they're, as we said, they're taken. There's a two-step process by which testing occurs. Uh, then it's spun down. Those red blood cells are, are gathered, and they're put together into the units that are used in, in hospitals. Okay, thank you for that picture, just because uh, a lot of people don't consider that aspect, the extensive testing that happens and the extensive treatment. Now let's dive into this policy shift that's happened. Help us understand what the policy was around uh, donating blood for, from gay men, um, and, and was it about safety or, or did it come down to discrimination? You know, all, absolutely all the requirements that are, that are there for the blood system are all about safety. 
And it's about, you know, we have had a history of thousands of people being infected by the blood system back in the 80s. There was the Creever Commission uh, back in 1997 that provided recommendations. Following that, we have a whole set of blood regulations that are designed to protect the system. And in the last over 25 years, we have not had a single case of HIV transmission, for example, from the blood system. And absolutely, the system is designed to make sure that that continues and that safety is maintained. So that's really the goal. And the issue is that we're basing that on the science and evidence that we have. So, you know, we've moved from uh, what we call deferrals for a high, higher risk activities. One group that is at high risk are men that have sex with men. There used to be a full ban, so you, there was a deferral. It wasn't just a deferral, but they could not donate blood ever. Then it was moved to um, five years, one year, three months, and now we're using different criteria. So it's based on a lot of different factors. So the risk in the population of, of certain uh, infectious diseases um, are ways of being able to detect them, and that's improved. The technology has improved over the years. Um, the, the ability of questionnaires and questions to be able to decrease that risk effectively, but all of it is really designed to make sure that, again, we're not changing the risk. We're not putting anybody at increased risk uh, from the blood system. And there are people that are very, obviously, dependent on blood for if they have an accident or some, uh, some um, illness, but also there are people that have regular blood transfusions, so we're exposed to a lot of blood products. And we want to make sure that the system is safe for everyone. We obviously, of course, do not want we want to make sure that that's not discriminatory. And that's why we went through uh, working with, the, with the, the Canadian Blood Services to look at the data to see if we could change the system and add questions more on sexual behaviors rather than sexual orientation. Okay, but doctor, uh, historically, was it discriminatory? You know, again, all of the requirements were based on science and evidence. So it wasn't the system absolutely was not designed to discriminate against a certain group. We can understand that that's a perception out there. But the issue has been when we look at the Canadian population, the group that is defined as men having sex with men has the highest incidence of uh, HIV in Canada. And there's also a window period between when you get infected with HIV and before you can show up positive on a test. Now, that, that timeline has decreased. It's around eight days now, but it used to be much longer as well. So again, the system was never designed to discriminate against anyone's sex, gender or sexual orientation, but it was based on the data that we had about the potential risks of transmission of disease in Canada. And so we've been moving towards this policy shift for quite some time. Uh, the Prime Minister has made comments on how this change should have happened a long time ago. You did mention there that we had to wait for some technology and screening to improve. We went from a full ban to different criteria. So there have been improvements in progress along the way. But do you think that this could have happened earlier? I mean, from a Health Canada perspective, it couldn't have happened earlier because we didn't have the submission from Canadian Blood Services supported by evidence that showed that it would not, that this change would not increase the risk to the health, the, the blood system. So from our perspective, there's, there's, there was no period in time earlier that we could have made this change or made this authorization. And, you know, there was, uh, you know, when we had discussions about it earlier, 
one of the things that people pointed to is that there wasn't enough research out there. So, you know, the government of Canada then funded to the tune of more than $6 million research over the years. Um, we had other um, submissions for plasma, which is one component of blood, to have this similar kind of questionnaire questions added last year. We've had evidence from that come in. Also, when we decreased it from uh, one year to three months, the deferral, we have data. It takes time for you to get data from that to come in. We have data from other countries like the UK as well. So that came in. This was the earliest that we could we got a submission and we obviously looked at it very closely and this is the earliest that we could authorize that change. Okay, very quickly here, just 20 seconds. I wonder if you expect that this policy shift is going to significantly affect the number of blood donations you get. Um, we we expect so. There's there's um, this group of people, so men having sex with men are about 2 to 3% of the Canadian population. We've certainly heard that there are a number of people in this group that are very pleased with the result and that they would like to donate blood. Um, some of those especially may have rare, rare blood types. So, you know, there is likely to be an increase um, in terms of, of donors. Whether that is significant in the grand scheme of things really depends on people coming forth and, okay. and, uh, and donating blood. Okay, Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much for your time. Well, we have been talking a lot in this show today about crime, what people are seeing and how people are feeling. We had the Attorney General on saying that crime is more visible these days, but that certain crimes, he says, are not significantly up. And then we also have claims on other numbers that suggest that certain crimes are up. Well, I wonder how you're feeling. The other day, uh, I walked downtown in the downtown core with uh, my five-year-old, and it had been quite some time since we had done that. And it was very interesting to hear how she saw the city, to see the city downtown core through her eyes. And I uh, was on high alert, I have to say, the whole time as I I saw a lot of people struggling. I saw needles on sidewalks. And no, I can't say I felt terribly safe either. Well, last Thursday, there was a special meeting at the Vancouver City Hall that allowed people to air their concerns and offer solutions about Chinatown. Now, many of them were legacy businesses in Chinatown who were concerned uh, with a rise in what they feel is kind of chaos, in street chaos. Joining us on the line is Calvin Chan, owner of the Hung Win Seafood in Chinatown. Good morning, Calvin. Good morning, Waji. Hey, thanks for giving us your time this morning. I wonder what you feel when you are in Chinatown on a day-to-day basis. How are you feeling in terms of your safety? Uh, thank you for having me, Raji. Uh, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge that my business is on the land of the unceded territory of the Coast Village people. Always important to acknowledge and thank the Indigenous community for their historical support of the Chinese community in Canada. Um, so, good question. So, it's undoubtedly um, a fact that Chinatown has been evolving with time. Um, much like the 80s and 90s, which I was very young, but I still remember a safe, healthy, vibrant community. Uh, uh, both as a cultural hub and a tourist attraction. Uh, what I've seen is that crime and safety concerns has displaced a lot of the uh, historical community of Chinatown, and it has kind of taken over. And if you pay attention to news, I'm sure your listeners of CKW have, uh, that that is very apparent. Okay, so how long have you been in Chinatown? 
Great question. Uh, our family has owned and operated Hanwin Seafood on Gore Avenue for nearly 30 years now. Uh, we're a live seafood market. Uh, most of our customer base is residents of Chinatown and surrounding areas like Strathcona and the downtown east side. Uh, this includes a lot of the uh, like the gonggongs and pawpaw and Cantonese. We, uh, we call them the grandpas and grandmas. And yes. they shop with us because we provide them with a sense of familiarity and safety that they always are for. Yeah, so you guys have been there for quite some time now. I want to hear about what your experience is in terms of the changes you've witnessed. Great. Uh, a lot of familiar faces are no longer here. So those gonggongs and pawpaws I uh, mentioned earlier, um, yeah. they, they, they no longer come down in Chinatown. Why, even Calvin? Though, where are they? Uh, all over Vancouver. A lot of them uh, just decide that uh, they go to these other, whether grocery markets, all of them rely on their children or their grandchildren to even bring them their groceries now. Especially the rise of um, anti-Asian hate since the start of the pandemic, uh, they no longer feel safe. So those regular customers that have been visiting my family shop for 30 years now, uh, we, we don't see them anymore. And even if they do come, uh, they jump in and out of a car or in and out of the bus. They grab whatever they need, that fresh fish, and then they jump back into the bus. They no longer mix with the um, community that they once were a part of. Okay, and you said in part that's due to the rise in anti-Asian crime. What did you see in terms of anti-Asian hate during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, like a lot more uh, visible hate, whether it be tag uh, graffiti, uh, messages, unwelcome messages on walls. Uh, I don't think I remember how my storefront looks like without any graffiti. Um, there's also a lot of uh, physical and uh, some verbal assaults, too. Um, some may get very violent, obviously, but some are just uh, petty little um, remarks that you hear left and right now. And Once sorry, again, Kelvin, that, are these comments that you didn't hear very often comparatively before the pandemic? Racism's always existed, right? But I, there has been, they can't give you numbers, but I have felt that personally. I've seen and heard more uh, comments. That's awful. Yeah. What's that like it, for your community? It, 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 um, it, it, I won't say set us back, but it does really displace uh, not just the, the Chinese community, but it's also specifically those pawpaws and gonggongs, those elderly who relied on so relied on Chinatown for so long. Uh, but but overall, right? It's it, I think it's all about how do we continue renovating and rejuvenating Chinatown, right? I, I believe that a Chinatown is can be strong if it's inclusive, if we welcome all, and if all feels welcome. In Chinatown as well. So whether it's a mix of new businesses with old businesses and legacy businesses like myself, or whether it be new customers or new demographics that live in the area itself. itself. So, but Calvin, do you think that, do you think Chinatown might be at risk then of losing its core identity? Uh, uh, absolutely. So if you walk down Kiefer Street, Pender Street, Gore Avenue, what you'll see is a lot of the empty storefronts. Uh, most of these storefronts were previously occupied by legacy businesses like Marcel's, right, that provide a very cultural significant goods or service, uh, but they're now empty. So, yes, the fabric of Chinatown, which is was built by those legacy businesses and the residents, um, it has been deteriorating. And some people will say, oh, you know what, that's just like, that's part of what happens in cities. It's part of like the urban trend. What do you say to that? Uh, I, I, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. So I'll give you the, the bad, right? 
The pessimistic part would be that there is that identity that slowly is disappearing. Uh, and that identity is important, right? It's what makes Chinatown, Chinatown is make, what makes us one of the, or previously one of the most visited parts of Canada and North America. Um, but there is also some good to it. Um, there are a lot of new businesses, entrepreneurs, um, such as like Blind Tiger Dumpling on East Georgia, DS Compact Sports on Pender Street, where they both bring in the new crowd, provide the goods and service, but also at the same time, they recognize both the cultural and historical significance of the area and the people that they serve. So it's, I'm both, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm both pessimistic as in, I hate to see my neighbors and friends leave, but it's also at the same time, also exciting seeing new businesses and people blending seamlessly together as well. Yeah, it would be nice, though, to retain those uh, grandmas and grandpas because they add so much to the cultural fabric, as you say, of Chinatown. Calvin Chan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.